Uh, tonight we'll hear the rebroadcast of a program first heard over WFMT in 1959, 35 years ago, with Alan Lomax, who's perhaps the most exciting and imaginative musicologist working today, anywhere in the world. Alan Lomax, the American folklorist and musicologist, has had a, a career that spans a good 65 years of work. Uh, he and his father, uh, working in the early days in the South, uh, finding, discovering Lead Belly and early blues singers. Alan recorded these with an old type of recording machine, traveled to Europe throughout and recorded music of Middle Europe and the British Isles and the Mediterranean, and he came back. And shortly after his return, we did this broadcast. Uh, and it, it concerns uh, the blues as well as uh, this is a trip to Spain. And Alan has always had an idea of through music, you understand how people live and attitudes toward one another. And as a result of which, he's come forth with something quite revolutionary. It's called The Global Jukebox, and it's a multimedia compilation of the world's music, dance, and song, and language. And he's a guest of Columbia College. And so uh, Monday, October 24th at 7 o'clock, he'll be offering this, this quite remarkable program at the Harold Washington Library Center, 400 South State Street, at 7 o'clock. It's called the Global Jukebox. You hear much about this in the future. And so after this message, you'll hear that 1959 broadcast. The voice is that of Alan Lomax. I'm sure that many of us uh, are not attuned to listening to Alan Lomax as a performer. We've heard of him as certainly one of the pioneers and uh, one of the key figures in what is described as the revival of interest in American folk music, although it's not really revival. It's been there, and wherever it's been, certainly Alan Lomax has been a discoverer and a collector. Perhaps he can be described as a man of many curiosities, a man of restlessness aesthetically. And Alan here is a singer. This is part of the Cap album. It's called Folk Song, Saturday Night, and the voice was that of Alan Lomax, the banjo of Peggy Seeger. It's Cap KL 1110, and on order about, oh, about 18 numbers. What about Saturday night, Alan, before we ask of you and your adventures as a ballad hunter and a ballad discoverer for the past 10 years? What about the song Saturday night? Well, I suppose uh, that, that's a song that comes out of my youth and the youth of almost all country boys in the South. My father sang it while he was clearing bottom line down in Bosque County, Texas, way back uh, about the time of the Civil War. And uh, he sang it sometimes when he'd get up in the morning and in his uh, flannel nightshirt and sort of uh, get the fresh air of the morning into his lungs. And uh, looking out over the green hills, it reminded him of his boyhood, and he'd sing that song about Saturday night. It's a, it, it's a Negro song, it's a white song, it's a Southern song. And uh, into it, uh, the Southerners have poured that peculiar kind of uh, joy that's Southern, that wild, you know, uh, tangy feeling about life that you don't have anywhere else in America but down there. Because life is so mixed up, everything is so awful, <laughs> and so Motions bad, and, and so tremendous. And you, you know, I, 
I don't suppose any Southerner would have given up growing up in the South. You know, some you may want to leave there, but uh, you have something out of that uh, growing up down there that you can't have anywhere else in America. Uh, and we'll hear more of this of you in the South and uh, your adventures seeking the ballads, you and your father, you from childhood on. But in the past ten years, you've traveled in other parts of the world. And there you've been. And well, I tell you. Uh, studs, along about uh, the end of the war, I'd been collecting steadily with the recording machine in America f f since I was 17. That that was uh, pretty close to 18 straight years. I'd been in every back alley in every little town uh, east of the Mississippi pretty well. <clears throat> and uh, I got so I wasn't feeling fresh about America. It was coming out of my ears. And I, I wasn't enjoying it anymore. So it uh, seemed to me that the big problem that time was uh, to make the world feel like a, a, a world of various people speaking various languages all about the same big human problems. And that what the folklorists could do would be to, uh, the quickest thing to do, since we had now uh, the tape machine, the long playing record, was to put all that together in a picture so that the world could hear the world singing, Vox Humana. And I got up at a learned meeting and <laughs> proposed this. I said, let's form a committee and put our, all our records together and inform ourselves about what we have. We don't even know what we eat. What, what, I don't know what you've got in Sweden and you don't know what I've got in America. Let's make a pool. Sort of an order out of disorder. Uh, and uh, also to make a point. Mm -hmm. Well, I probably shouldn't have said that, <laughs> you know, because sometimes uh, academic people don't aren't quite sure what the point is. They don't want to make come come clean about what the point is together on committees anyway. So they voted me down. This was at an international meeting in Indiana here, and it made me so mad. I, I had one man to vote with me. I, got, I said, doggone it, I'll do it myself if they won't do it with me. And I went to New York, and uh, uh, Goddard Lieberson said, sure, if you think the stuff is there, go and get it. It's Columbia. Columbia, yeah. Got a Magna Cord and got on the next boat pretty nearly. And uh, thought that, oh, it maybe take me about a year. <laughs> and uh, we were going to do 40 albums, one from each main country or human region, ethnically speaking. Well, I'm now at album 18, and that's uh, about nine years ago. This is nine years ago this this began. That's right. Well, that was the time that uh, the, the song Irene Goodnight had hit, you see, and uh, uh, it just by accident it happened that some of the copyright pertained to us, to me, and uh, I thought I couldn't, that money wasn't really mine, it belonged to folk music, so I decided to spend it on that. So about the first three years of traveling around Europe and trying to organize this thing, which turned out to be an enormous job. I've got filing cabinets of correspondence with folklorists in every part of the world. And, uh, oh, there were a lot of misadventures. Uh, one person, enthusiastic in Argentina, got one letter, said yes, and the next thing I heard from him was eight months later, and they sent me Argentina on tape. The only trouble was that they hadn't bothered to make a very good tape. 
and I, <laughs> I couldn't use it at all. <laughs> I wake up in the night with that one. I mean, two of the best folklorists in, in uh, Latin America. The material was beautiful, and it was just so bad acoustically that it couldn't ever be printed by anybody. And those people had taken a whole year oh, of work, traveled all over the whole of Argentina. I don't even know how big Argentina is, if it's at least half as big as the United States, you know. And, uh, oh, the doggondest things happened in this... Uh, uh, in this collecting enterprise, I I walked into the museum of um, um, Indonesia in, in Amsterdam. Jap Kunst, who's the uh, most knowledgeable man about Indonesian folk music, and uh, <clears throat> Jap said, uh, "Unfortunately, you know, Alan, dear Alan, there there just aren't very many records from Indonesia. We just we didn't have records, recording machine when I was there, so." <laughs> We talked, and he played me a few scratchy old things, and we had dinner and discussed problems. And then one day, about the second day I was there, I saw a huge stack of of uh, transcriptions. You know these great big, uh, big ones, 16, 16 inches, inches mm -hmm. 30s. I said, what's on those records, Jop? He said, well, you know, I don't quite know. A fellow uh, sent them here, and I've never had time to play them. Why don't we see? It turned out that this was Indonesia on this stack well, of records. There were thing. about uh, 25 hours that a, that a Dutchman had made in all of the Dutch possessions in Indonesia just ahead of the Japanese invasion. He said, well, we may never get back there. I want to take the memories of this place with me. And there it was all on, in the office. In the office. It was a question of someone being there and you were and, at that uh, time. Oh, uh, well, negotiating with with a, a museum in Europe, like it took uh, a year and a half to arrange the contract for the French album with the French Folklore Archive. They were eager to do it, and by pressing the administrative machinery quickly on, <laughs> we got the record. Well, here at the are end some of the <laughs> barriers you've had to overcome. Let's uh, uh, start this nine-year adventure, if we can, this world. It was called the World Library of Folk and Primitive Music. That's right. right. Columbia. And... Uh, as I was about to have everything ready, I had about 13 albums done, and uh, they said, uh, well, we really can't put this whole thing over without Spain. By that time, the Irene Goodnight money was gone. <laughs> and uh, my Citroen was getting pretty tired, and uh, I, uh, well, I had to go to Spain. Somehow I, somehow I did. I went there, actually, to, uh, to find somebody to do the work for me. There I ran into the only opposition I ran into in all of uh, all of Europe, actually. Uh, the only real problem I had, I, I met the, it's a very long story, but I met the man who was head of musicology in Spain, and he was a Nazi refugee. And, uh, a Nazi refugee? A Nazi mm -hmm. refugee. They just put him in charge of the whole thing. This, all the Spanish folk music people were under him. They couldn't move, breathe, or live without his approval. So, uh, he just told me flat out, and in a very, very stormtrooper fashion, he didn't approve of this, and that nobody in Spain would help me. He wouldn't let them. And he suggested it would be a very good idea if I'd get out of there. How, how were you able to work out the Spanish album? Well, I didn't have any tape with me. I had to smuggle it into the country because uh, it's against the law to do recording without government permission. And I just went on ahead and did it. And you did it. I started in Mallorca and just... 
drifted through Spain uh, in a cloud of dust. Uh, didn't know anything about what there was. I didn't. I hadn't planned to do it. I hadn't prepared. You see, I just had to find out all by myself. It was quite a job, but at the end of seven months, uh, most of the important uh, types of Spanish folk song were in the can. It's the first time I think that a whole country had ever been surveyed, and uh, I was about at the end. And we we had to smuggle the whole lot out across the border, you know. And we went past that <laughs> customs with cars stacked with tape, everything illegal, ammunition. <laughs> yes. Well, suppose we hear well, the uh, sound of Spain then. Let's put on the thing that everybody's familiar with first, a little flamenco. These are, these are some gypsies in a fiesta in uh, Jerez de Seville, uh, the music that's supported by the big wine merchants who supported uh, the fascist revolution. Who this is in Seville, you say? No, in uh, Jerez de Seville. This is the, t the center of the capital of flamenco. Well, that's sort of... Uh, that's probably not the sort of flamenco that you've heard before. It's it's the kind of thing that happens in the streets. Actually, I couldn't... I was about to say, this is flamenco neat. <laughs> I couldn't uh, afford to record the kind of flamenco that, that's already on records because, see, that flamenco is like jazz might be become in America after another 75 years. The players are all tremendous artists, very highly paid. They mostly live with the bullfighters, as you know and money streams out. I mean, you can't spend an evening with a great flamenco singer for under a hundred bucks. And the idea of recording him <laughs> for that is out of the question. So, uh, but the, the flamenco as it lives every day has never, has never been recorded. It just happened. The and pavement flamenco singers. That's right. So I was in bars or I was in little country towns and uh, recorded a great deal of flamenco without any accompaniment because I discovered most of the uh, <clears throat> most of the people of Andalusia are too poor to own guitars. I mean, poverty there is uh, so, uh, something that's very hard for an American to believe. Great deal of starvation. People working at that time for 25, 30 cents a day. The greatest flamenco sound happens every Easter in the big Easter parade in Seville. And uh, maybe you'd like to hear the, the way this sounds. Uh, I might explain this is, all of southern Spain is in there, in that town. The, the pr procession is miles long. Uh, there are all sorts of people in religious costumes. And the, the image of the Virgin is borne by a great number of people. And uh, it's preceded by cavalry with drawn sabers, surrounded by armed police and machine guns. This is a whole symbol of, of uh, the way that the church is, is actually in the life of the Spanish people today. There in the center sits the Virgin with the glass tears running down her beautiful porcelain cheeks. And uh, as this procession comes to a balcony where a singer is, uh, a saita singer is ready, uh, the trumpeter sees the singers in the balcony, sounds the note on the trumpet, the procession gradually comes to a halt. and then this singer has to quiet the crowd of maybe 25,000 listeners, 15,000 there in the streets below. If, she, if he or she doesn't make it, just too bad. But if she does, he or she does make it, that means that they'll be invited to all the big parties during the whole of Easter season and may make five, ten thousand dollars just in gifts from people singing the same tune. And the audience on the street uh, is the judge. That's right. They judge it. 
and this is all improvised. So let's hear that band. Well, Alan, this is this is a full-length play here. This is all the yeah. drama of, of uh, this is more than just a band here. All the elements that that come into play here. Well, uh, this is the the big, I suppose the the big folk song style of uh, Western Europe, except perhaps for some things you hear in Ireland and uh, the Hebrides. Of course, and this is also very sophisticated and very much supported in by the whole culture there. And these artists are picked out. Uh, according to the natural order of artistic selection, as people would be everywhere. This isn't village stuff. This is sort of regional, big regional music. The voice we heard, the singer, he made it. Yeah, he makes his own verse. And uh, th as I say, that verse may mean he, he'll live very well for a few months, uh, be picked out of this ash heap, which is Andalusia for most people. Uh, However, uh, Andalusian music is the, is the blues and jazz of Spain. Back of uh, the blues and jazz of Spain, back of Andalusian music is a whole unknown world of Spanish folk song, which is, uh, to me, very much more interesting. Uh, after a few months, you can scarcely bear to hear flamenco anymore because it comes over the radio all the time. It has performed a wonderful function, by the way. Uh, it's almost prevented the intrusion of American popular music. You mean, uh, it, the popular doesn't make the, whatever, the jukeboxes or, or, or uh, radio of Spain? Not nearly so much as, as it does in all the rest of Europe, because they have flamenco, which is uh, such a big, important, contemporary, popular folk art. It feels, uh, fills the popular need That's there. That's right. What then? But in, in, in the pro each province has its own types of songs and dances, and they're very much alive. In fact, uh, you might say that the Spanish people have been living on their folklore for a, a very long time. They haven't had very much else. And especially since uh, the fascists have come in, uh, the people have not only been hungry, but they've been unable to move. They've just been held in a rigid vice. They know they can't get out of the country, they can't change their habitation very easily. They're watched all the time. And uh, so the village life has just been frozen. And they've kept themselves healthy through their folk lore, their folk customs, their folk calendar, their folk attitudes. The Spanish, any person who goes to Spain will tell you that they're the most human human beings, the most democratic people, the most uh, fully realized uh, people in all of the West. You'd rather be with a Spaniard than anyone. I mean, this is almost everyone's reaction. And I'm, qu I'm quite certain that this is mostly composed of their, of their traditional attitudes, their folklore. Well, of all the places, maybe uh, the Balearics are the most charming. Uh, for some reason, the Mallorquin people out on those islands <laughs> have just uh, told the rest of Spain to go to the devil. They never took seriously the iron hand of uh, Castilian conquest. They're, well, they're like people out of the Shakespearean comedies. You know, love's labor's lost. All, it's, that's the atmosphere. Flirtation, intrigue, nobody cares. Don't Their own world, empty. really. Very merry, very clever. They're great smugglers. They all live by smuggling there. <laughs> <laughs> Life is not very hard. Fruit grows the climate is superb, the girls are extremely pretty, everybody spends their whole life in flirt flirting, 
and they're the most loyal and darling friends that you can ever have, Mario Keen. Well, uh, Franco has blotted out the uh, uh, forbidden, the old uh, carnival, pagan carnival, which happens in February. Well, that, that's verboten in Spain. That's then. right. At the behest of the church, he, he stopped it. But the Mallorquin have the uh, carnival only in the country. And there they play an instrument called uh, Thimbomba, a friction drum. <laughs> is the sound, huh? Well, it's uh, erotic, vulgar body. <laughs> and if, you, if a, if a uh, Spaniard sees a Thimbomba in your car, he just laughs. I mean, the boys run after your car. If you want, ever want to travel through Spain, carry a Thimbomba. You can buy them anywhere. <laughs> You're friends with everybody immediately. It's Christmas carnival to, to Spanish people. It's an Arab instrument, actually. Uh, and uh, But in, in Mallorca, they have a song to the Simbomba, as if it was a little god of, of spring, and uh, address the most marvelous body rhymes to it. Uh, I, how I wish I could put my little uh, can light my little candle in your church, and on from there. Here is uh, the carnival in Mallorca, and it's a wild, primitive sound from way back in the p pagan past of the Mediterranean. Well, there you had a group of young men uh, singing in the moonlight uh, through the town on uh, in carnival. The young girls in the balconies listening, and uh, a night of merrymaking in prospect, because on carnival night the rules relax a bit. Uh, the girls there have especially beautiful voices in Mallorca. I think the prettiest singers of all s Spain are there, and uh, I was lucky enough. You don't, it, you know, when you're traveling so fast and working so fast, you don't always find the best singers, but in this island I was lucky enough to find two girls who have superb voices. Uh, very, very charming girls, about uh, 18. And here they sing a couple of lullabies, uh, Mallorquin lullabies, very tender, very special, like the little shady grape arbors of the island. Strength and clarity of a voice. I was thinking, it was an 18-year-old girl. You mm. see, the, it seems as a, a power here. Well, there's a, qual a color there in vocal color in Mallorca that I haven't quite heard anywhere else. It, it ha there, there are singers of the southern Mediterranean kind uh, with that Arab feel, but uh, with more richness, more resonance in the voice. And now maybe you'd like to hear one of the dances from uh, Mallorca. They're, uh, they're dancing people, and uh, they've had a folk song revival of their own. Actually, George Sand and Chopin were responsible for it. How's that? Well, very amusing because, you know, they ran away romantically to Mallorca to be together. And uh, they uh, went to a little town up in the mountains, lived in uh, a very beautiful old uh, monastery, actually. And Chopin was a great man from France. And among other things, they invited some young uh, villagers in to dance for him. He was very charmed by the tunes and the dances, too. And uh, so uh, uh, he wrote letters to people about it, and other people came to Mallorca after that and asked for dances. And Mallorca, since it's perfect tourist climate, other people began to come to Mallorca, and that same dancing group is still uh, going on. That same one. 
and it spread to all the other towns in Mallorca. And I, I recorded this particular <laughs> group from the same people in the same family who had danced for uh, Chopin and George Sand. So their folk music revival antedates ours considerably. <laughs> it's, uh, oh, uh, the kids are really wonderful. They've uh, recreated all of the old sounds of the 16th and 17th centuries there in the island. This is one called Copeo. On the next island south, um, the island of Avisa, which is was hardly known until a few years ago and has now become a, a great uh, resort for painters, you find a completely different culture. And what most people think is the oldest sound in the, in the western part of Europe. The island was um, a Phoenician outpost. It was where the ty uh, the purple for the uh, famous purple of, of Tyre and Sidon came from, the shellfish. And uh, <coughs> the most of the uh, remains in the museum are images of Phoenician gods. The people are very sober, uh, doer. The folk costume is all in black. Uh, they say very little. They have one folk tune, and it's applied to everything. Uh, most of the songs are parting, uh, songs of parting to sailors uh, leaving for a sea voyage, or sailors who are coming back, or songs of girls who are hoping their sailors will come back. They're long, long sort of um, elegies, and uh, uh, they have a strange dance in which the men sort of leap and caper with huge kind of goat-like steps around the women while they go around little tiny mincing steps inside them. Uh, this in contrast to this very kind of sexy, uh, colorful music that you've just heard from Mallorca. And here they use only flutes and uh, these huge castanets which are as big as the palm of your hand. First let's hear a little bit of this uh, Avisa dance. More of a staccato people than the others mm. too in the whole Yes. I I don't I suspect that that sound hasn't changed very much um, in the last couple of thousand years. Uh, the this music is a complete mystery, and you'll I think be more impressed by this when you hear the song. Now uh, the singer ha has to sing if he's going to sing Avisan songs in precisely the manner that you're going to hear, and this the most important part of this manner involves a kind of shaking and gurgling of the of the throat but down in the voice box itself it's impossible to do unless you've practiced it for years and every every um, uh, the end of every line and the every end of every stanza is marked by a certain number of these shakes so no improvisation allowed here then is there? what is there improvisation well there is improvisation but uh, there's this there's this vocal style this one this monochrome applied to every kind of singing if you can't sing this way you're not in a vison don't sing or sing something else a different world entirely a strange one well um, my friends uh, the historians of music uh, and experts on Spanish music this is the first time this was ever recorded by the way are completely baffled by this it's certainly very old and it's certainly oriental and uh, it's just one of the many traces of the uh, of the of ancient oriental musical culture which you find all through the Mediterranean but I think this is probably the oldest and purest example now 
you can imagine how this hit me. I, I've suddenly realized that what was important about folk music was style. That what uh, a people are doing when they're singing is recreating in, in terms of sound, in terms of, of timbre, the uh, whole of their culture. And uh, they only need one tune to do that. And I remembered that really that's the way it was like in most of the folk, really, truly folk communities that I've been in. A few tunes, but an atmosphere, uh, uh, a way of behaving musically speaking. This has set me off on a whole new approach to folk music. Uh, and uh, the Wiesen material was what gave me the idea first. It isn't so much then the nature of a repertoire or the no. breadth of the scope of a repertoire so no. much as the, as you say, particular style and handling the few numbers that may be. The approach, the way that you make music. Because the Wiesen, uh, who for instance, their architecture is the most charming ar uh, rural architecture I've ever seen. When you get to know them, people of tremendous variety and style. But um, their folk music, which is, as you can hear, extremely old. And uh, by the way, this is very, very hard to do. This is a very high musical art to be able to sing this way, if you choose to sing this way. And that piper in there is playing with tremendous uh, style so that they're not people of limited ability this is the way this is what music means to them they like to make music this way you see and this means their culture it seems Alan going from Andalusia to Mallorca to Avisa you've taken steps here it seems these are more than just musical steps from the sophisticated to the more free and unrestrained to the most pagan as though you're coming closer and closer to the core of the apple here well this is about as far back into the past I think of, of the classical world of the Mediterranean as, as we can go. Maybe a little later I'll show you some, some, something of the other side, the, the uh, wonderful, uh, rutty, uh, coral, uh, cider-drenched singing that was in Europe before these uh, conquistadors from Phoenicia began to poke their boats out there and, and teach the people a whole nother, a different way of life. But uh, what was exciting, Studs, for me, I, I, I worked myself really to, into a state of exhaustion and emerged from Spain absolutely dead broke with my car full of tapes. And then for a wonder it turned out that the BBC was that year doing a whole year on the Spanish civilization. They did every kind of Spanish music and drama that, uh, that they could reconstruct, but they didn't have to reconstruct the folk music as it turned out. And the stuff went right on the air and created an enormous amount of excitement because, uh, first place, there were the first really good tape recordings that had been used there. And the second place, uh, of course, Spain means a tremendous amount to, uh, to uh, Britishers. It's sort of like Mexico for us. And uh, so the broadcasts were really a sensational success and prestige. And uh, they were... Actually, uh, they were repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated, and I think they're still doing them. After Spain, this is just one avenue of your explorations here. If we may wander back, perhaps in time and in space, to use a cliche, Spain will come back to Europe and your adventures of the past nine years or so. 
I suppose you found parallels in your own way between uh, the music you heard in Spain, the various communities, and explorations here. The I know many people think of you, think of your father, in finding some of the prison songs, bring them out into the open, the singers, mm -hmm. aside from Lead Belly, the others that you heard and found. What about the prison songs, some of the prison songs that you brought to the Library of Congress and you had recorded and heard? Well, the first half of my working life was uh, really, in a sense, wasted on a, on a, on a type of recording that nobody can bear to listen to, but the expert today, I mean, the old kind of disc recording. Mine were mostly done on aluminum, which goes scratch, 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 scratch. And so when the tape machine came along, uh, marked a real revolution in my life. I bought the first portable machine that there was, 1947, and uh, I took it down to the Mississippi Penitentiary where we had made some of our best recordings earlier because there the work song tradition lives where it's needed to console people, to make it possible for people to work under those terrible old-fashioned plantation conditions. And I uh, took it in there one winter and recorded a whole uh, album of, uh, <coughs> of songs which have recently been published. And uh, I guess it's... it's it's about the only good acoustic recording of of uh, the prison songs. Most of the people on these records are already dead, worked to death. But here they come on with Rosie. You know, uh, Rosie is the <laughs> is the girl of the dreams of the Mississippi Penitentiary. Uh, and Rosie's the girl, just as I suppose the Midnight Special is the train in a sense. That's right to hang on the prison bars and dream about Rosie. And sometimes Rosie gets to come to see him on Sunday. That's one of the other things about the South, <laughs> a kind of a relaxed attitude toward uh, being in jail. The trustees get to see their girlfriends, and uh, it's all very relaxed and easygoing. But during the week, they sing about him <laughs> in anticipation. So Rosie helps make the work more... Uh Endurable too. Hey? And it made my life in Britain. I tell you, when I put these tapes on the BBC, I, I had a permanent <laughs> welcome in Great Britain. It hit them like an absolute express train. That was in 1950. Actually, what happened? My first, my first broadcast was oh, singing with guitar. They liked that very much. You know, we talked about the, the how. The, how Lord Gregory gave mm -hmm. rise to John Henry, things like that. They enjoyed that a lot, you see. Uh, Anglo-American ties, amity. They were hating our guts at the time, <laughs> and they were glad to find Musical amity. <laughs> find something they liked about us. But I managed to persuade the head of third program one day at lunch when we were both rather drunk uh, that uh, there was something in this book of mine about Jelly Roll, which had just been... Print, that was Mr. Jelly Roll. Mr. Jelly Roll. It was reviewed with great seriousness in the Times and so on, Spectator, and it was taken much more seriously in England than here. Actually, it had a great success. It was a bestseller in England, but not in America. Unfortunately for America, but, uh, it was an excellent book. Anyway, uh, because the book had just come out in the reviews, he agreed to do one broadcast on Jelly Roll. And that was the first time jazz had ever been on the third program, which is equ roughly equivalent to your kind of station here. And that rocked the country from end to end. I mean, 
it it I, it's been repeated ever since. Uh, the Jolly Roll was the the end for the British. I mean, it meant finally a relaxation of their kind of slightly snobby standards on the BBC. And then I w- next one was was this the Jelly Roll interview in music at the Library of Congress? That's right. And uh, the next one was this prison broadcast, you see, for these prisoners. And there I was able to talk about some of the problems. And uh, they understood every word of these songs in a way that then America couldn't. They never had any problem with the dialect. I could put on records there that, that, you could, that no American network would think of broadcasting they say it wouldn't be understood. How would you explain that? Was there more of a well, more serious listening? Yeah, they listen harder than we do. And uh, then, oh, I don't know, after that I did... Would you like to hear another one of the sides? I think one more of the uh, sides of the Mississippi... Yeah, well, let's hear the hour. next one. It's Levy Camp Holler. Now, this Levy Camp Holler is really what, what the blues comes from, I think. At the time my father and I first went into the South in the 30s, this was the universal southern workman's tune. You could hear it from Texas to Washington. Anywhere a Negro with a mule was working, he was singing this. I don't know if you heard that last sentence. <laughs> That's the greatest in the world. He says, well, she brought me my breakfast this morning. She didn't even know my name. She said, give it to the long line skinner with the brass knob hame. <laughs> she identifies the man that she's with, living with in the levee camp by, by the harness of the mule that he's driving. And this sort of, uh, this ironic laughing spirit in spite, of course, of the, I mean, this doesn't mean they're kidding a, uh, their whole lives away. So it means humor, they can humor accept adversity, this. Really. Yeah. And also I wonder if you, can remember the contrast between this voice and the last voice that we heard, that is uh, that evasive voice. The evasive, the, the, huh? The, uh, sort of a, uh, that throat uh, pulled back in here. Who was this singer? This is a man named Bama. A Bama, uh, he you know he he plays with his voice like a kid already does on his trombone. trombone. Hmm. I think he's one of the most beautiful singers I ever heard in my life. Um, Bama last, was in. Bama was yeah, in the pen. Yeah. And between every stanza, he laughed out of just release, joy, pleasure, you know. So this is our program for the evening. Just to remind the audience, what you heard was first broadcast over WFMT 35 years ago. That's a 1959 program in conjunction, uh, the rebroadcast, with Alan Lomax being in Chicago uh, working with Columbia College and through the good office of Columbia College, is offering a special kind of demonstration. It's more than lecture, it's, it's everything. It's music, dance, song, uh, through the machinery he has with him. It's called the Global Jukebox, and uh, it's open to the public at the Harold Washington Library. It's uh, Monday night at 7 o'clock, October 24th, at the Harold Washington Library.